Hello again, everybody. This is Anthony Harris with Looking Back and Moving Forward. We're here once again to talk about some of the things that are going on in our country right now, um, some things that have been happening for decades and centuries, and some things that have been happening just recently. And I think it doesn't take long to look at what's been going on in the past. If, prologue, if the past is prologue, we have some interesting things ahead of us as we move forward. But today I want to do a couple of things. One is to talk about what we're seeing so much in the news today about what many of us would call voter suppression. Efforts by state legislatures around the country to uh, give, give oxygen to, to give support to this notion that Donald Trump was robbed and rigged. The election was rigged and he was robbed up of a victory in the 2020 election, there's this big lie is what it is. There's this baseless claim by those who say that um, people voted fraudulently, fraudulently and that people, um, dead people voted, that all kinds of shenanigans went on. When all of that is completely baseless, nobody has provided any evidence. It is that it's something that people believe. Some people believe that these things happen and they believe it only because Trump and his enablers have been telling people that's what happened. Because if you continue to tell a lie long enough and say it enough times, people will start believing it. You don't have to have proof. You just have to keep repeating the same big lie over and over. And that's what's, that's what's happening. And that an extension of that big lie and the spreading of those baseless claims that the election was fraudulent, fraudulently conducted we have these state legislatures around the country in Iowa and Arizona, Georgia, and Mississippi, all across uh, the South and across other parts of the, of the country. And, and mainly these, not mainly, but exclusively, these are Republican-led uh, legislatures where Republicans are in charge. And basically what they're telling us is that Republicans are unable to win on the issues. They can't win on policies. They can't win on on coming up with new ideas. So in order to win, they have to reduce the number of people who cast ballots. Because history has shown, and they certainly know it, and they have admitted this publicly, that a larger voter turnout places Republicans at a distinct disadvantage. Now I want you to think about that. In a democracy, these people are saying we have to restrict the number of people who vote in order for us to win. Because uh, if more people participate in this democracy and cast ballots, Republicans are not going to do well. So in order to, um, in their view, level the playing field, which is really not leveling it at all, it's just skewing it more in their direction, they say we have to impose more uh, restrictions on voting. And you see that again happening in uh, former, former slave states, uh, former states of the Confederacy, as well as other parts of the country where some of this harkens back to the days of post-Reconstruction. As we know, after the Civil War, Reconstruction was implemented, and one of the, um, one of the things that came along with uh, Reconstruction, one of the benefits there for uh, freed uh, black folk was that they were given the right to vote. And they, used the, they went to the ballot box, and they used their, their right to vote. And, and in some states, in particular Mississippi and some other southern states, Black people were uh, elected to, to national office, elected to the Congress, uh, Senate, and the House of Representatives. And it was just a glorious day 
I mean, it was it was what I think Lincoln envisioned, and those who supported the effort to, uh, to 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 reconstruct this country and to provide some uh, rights for black people. Well, we know what happened after that. Uh, the black codes were uh, introduced in the South. Uh, there was this pushback, this backlash by white supremacists and segregationists and, and racists in the South. And they began to implement these things like poll taxes and literacy tests uh, in an effort to uh, discourage black people from even trying to register to vote, let alone cast a ballot to vote. We saw this all across the South where, again, these, these segregationists, these racists, these white supremacists, these white nationalists, just could not abide the this power this this power that these black people now have been given with the ballot and with the ability to um, to make policies in Washington. They just couldn't handle that. They said, "Nope, nope, we can't do that." So they came with these black codes that that restricted their right to vote, and those became known as Jim Crow laws. And we know what we know the history and the legacy of Jim Crowism, and it took the Voting Rights Act of 1965. To, to once again for the nation to, to even have to have a Voting Rights Act. I mean, that tells you something right there. Why do you even have to have a Voting Rights Act? I mean, the 13th Amendment ended slavery. And, you know, we, we had all of these things where, where black people were given the right to vote and then it was taken from them. And now we have to come along again and say, okay, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is going to say one more time that black people do have the right to vote. So what we saw in, in the post-Reconstruction era, we're seeing again, uh, after the 65 Voting Rights Act was passed, the, uh, you know, it, it, it did a lot of good. I mean, we, we began to see black elected officials across the South. We began to see more and more black people going to the polls. We, we saw uh, less interference and, and less restrictions from Southern states. And that's what the Voting Rights Bill required. If any other states covered in the Voting Rights Act, if they needed to make or wanted to make any changes in their election laws, it had to get receive clearance from the U.S. Justice Department. And they couldn't do anything. They couldn't restrict voting. They couldn't have voter suppression, voter IDs, any of those things without consent of the U.S. Justice Department. Well, as we know, in 2013, John Roberts, uh, Supreme Court, said, no, 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 you don't have to do that anymore, uh, you southern states <laughs> that have had a history of, of, of discrimination and oppression. Uh, so they basically gutted um, the 65 Voting Rights Act. And as a result of that, we saw this, this rash of voting suppression laws that popped up like mushrooms in the morning all across the South. In fact, some states like Texas and others, they already had the bill written. Uh, as soon as the Supreme Court made the decision, made it official, they immediately implemented these voter suppression laws because, again, they know that, particularly with people of color, the more the more of them who are voting, the more black people and brown people are voting, they are more likely not going to vote for Republicans. They're going to vote for Democrats. And there, therein lies the conundrum they have placed themselves in because, on the one hand, they want to extol the virtues of of participatory democracy where we need to encourage all people to, to vote. But when uh, certain groups of people attempt to vote, they say, oh, no, 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 we can't, we can't do that. We have to make it more difficult for you. And, and you think about 
how much sense that makes, and it doesn't make any sense. You would think that in order to grow your democracy, to give it strength and to give it the vibrancy and, and that it needs, you need full participation from the electorate. You need everybody having a voice, one person, one vote. That needs to be the principle. But again, these Republicans are saying, no, 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 we have to, we have to do away with that. And one of the things they're doing or proposing to do, and may get away with it, because again, these legislatures are controlled by Republicans, and these Republican legislatures are basically wholly owned subsidiaries of Trump, Trumpism, and they aren't going to do anything that will go against what Donald Trump wants. They, they really bought into the big lie that Trump lost because of uh, more people got to vote, and they figure next time if we have fewer people voting, Donald Trump, if he, if he runs, he will have a better chance because we're going to do things like purge the polls. And one of the things they're doing, and I believe it is in Georgia, uh, the um, community, some communities there had the tradition of called souls to the polls. And that meant that Sunday after church services, people would caravan to uh, the, the, the ballot um, uh, precincts and they would cast their ballots right after church on Sundays. And, and this was a tradition, and it, 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 it supported the notion, and it facilitated the, the participation of people in the electoral process. Well, now Georgia wants to do away with that. They want to cut back on the amount of time that you can have for early voting. Uh, in Arizona, they are looking at how, how do you identify yourself. They want to cut back on these mail-in ballots. Some of these states... Uh, have what they now call no excuse uh, absentee voting, which means that you don't need an excuse. It used to be that you had to offer an excuse to uh, to cast your ballot. You were ill, or you're going to be out of town, or something. And then they did away. These legislatures did away with that, and then people started getting these absentee ballots. And all of a sudden, they're they're bad now. We can't do that anymore. So they're cutting back on. Absentee, ba absentee ballots, and even in some states, they are um, just just saying that you just, we don't want you to vote. In fact, in, in Arizona, there was a member of the, Republican member of the state legislature who said, not everybody should vote. Now let that marinate for a second. He says, not everybody should vote. And this is a Republican legislator who believes that not everybody should vote. Uh, if you are if you're a citizen of this country, you have, you have uh, conformed to the laws that allow people to vote. You should be able to vote. Now, what democracy out there is going to say, not everybody should vote? We should, we should be saying everybody who's eligible to vote should vote. But again, that doesn't work in Republican land, unfortunately. So we're going to continue to see these efforts by these legislatures uh, to reduce the number of people, uh, particularly in the minority communities who can get to the polls, because they know full well the history of voting uh, racially. You know, you know, black folk, 90, 90 some odd percent support uh, Democratic candidates. And they know as long as that's going on, the odds of them um, they're, they've clearly said uh, it places them at a distinct disadvantage. And I want you to just let that soak in. 
Here we are in a democracy where we ought to be encouraging voter participation in the electoral process. These people are saying, no, we have to reduce the number of people participating in the electoral process. And, you know, something else that, that's been on my mind that we, you know, we need to talk about, and that is uh, something Ron Johnson uh, said the other day, and this is sort of a, an extension or follow-up to what happened on January 6, 2021. He, as many of you know, he went out and said, uh, days after the, the insurrection, he said, that was not an armed insurrection. Uh, there were no arms there. That, that was just people blowing off steam. And, you know, we shouldn't call it an insurrection. We shouldn't even call it a riot. We shouldn't call it an armed insurrection. And he and a lot of his colleagues tried to put a different face on that whole thing. You know, initially, everybody was upset about it. Everybody was saying what they were decrying all these, uh, this attempt to uh, be seditious and, and have an insurrection and overthrow the government and all those things. Initially, people were just outraged by that. Now they have fallen back and they, they've reconsidered and said, well, maybe it wasn't that bad after all. And, and Ron Johnson has taken it to another level. Just the other day, this guy, this is a U.S. senator from the state of Wisconsin, he was saying that when these rioters and these insurrectionists were marauding and around the, the Capitol, uh, tearing up things, going through desks and stealing laptops and beating police officers with um, flag poles that had the American flag still attached to it, all those things with their Confederate flags walking through there. He said, he said he did not feel threatened by any of that. He didn't feel threatened by any of that. And he went on to offer without any prompting. He said, now, had that been the Black Lives Matter group or Antifa, I would have been scared. I would have been scared to death. Because he said those people who came into the insurrectionists, in his view, those were uh, Trump-loving um, Bible-thumping, uh, flag-wearing, flag-waving, patriotic Americans, and he didn't have any fear of them. But all oh, those black folk come up in here. I don't know about them. I would have been scared to death. And you see that, you know, some people need to look at that and just say, how racist can you, can you get? When he's saying that with these white, mostly white rioters, rioters coming in, he felt okay because... They love law enforcement. They love the military. These are white guys. But a group of black people coming in, oh, I would fear. I would have so much fear. I wouldn't know what to do. Anyway, Ron Johnson is, um, I don't know. I want to be be nice here if I can. He is he is somebody who is lacking a core, a, any core values. He is, he is pretty much like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell, <clears throat> these individuals just have, they just don't seem to have much consistency in their value system. And they just keep, I mean, that's the face of the Republican Party. I mean, they, they try to do everything to appease Donald Trump, and they keep going further and further to the right. And I think you see the same thing with Fox News. You know, they are, they're having some rating challenges right now. Don't know how long that's going to last, but some of these other networks are challenging them. So one of the things they've had to do is to ramp up their conservative approach or their extremist approach to, to news. In fact, just recently, the head of Fox uh, News Corporation, Rupert Murdoch's son, said that 
their job now at Fox News is to be, for Joe Biden, um, the friendly opposition, um, that their job is to, is to oppose Joe Biden any way he can, they can. And the loyal opposition, I'm sorry, that's how we call it, the loyal opposition to Joe Biden. Now, this is a news network. This is not a political party, at least it's not supposed to be. Here they are. You, you hear Republicans talk about we are the loyal opposition and we will fight for what we believe in and we will compromise what we need to and that sort of thing. But here's a, a, a major news outlet, news network, saying that they are going to be the loyal opposition. So you have these people, you know, they're fomenting all of this, these doubts in, in people about the electoral process. They are perpetuating these big lies that Trump uh, lost the election in a fraudulent way and it was rigged and you know, all that, that kind of nonsense. And, and Ron Johnson is just, he just epitomizes all of the, um, I don't know, the hypocrisy, I guess that's a kind way to say it, the hypocrisy of, of some of these individuals. And, and Ron Johnson probably you know, is not going to run again for the U.S. Senate. So he probably feels though he can just say what he wants to say and he'd be, he'll be out of there. And, um, you know, you have um, the Republicans in, in, in Congress there. They're really having a tough time right now of trying to figure out just what they're supposed to be doing. As we know, the COVID, uh, $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill passed and is now law. And for those people who qualify, yay, 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 you will be receiving a check here pretty soon, a $1,400 stimulus check. And, and for those who are receiving unemployment, you know, you're going to get some extra money in your in your unemployment check and uh, individuals with children, they're going to get some, some additional child credit, child care credit. And, and even people who've been paying huge premiums for Obamacare, or, uh, they are going to get some relief there as well. And this bill was favored by 70 some odd percent of the American people. A huge chunk of Republicans supported it. But as we know, not a single, not one Republican Senator voted for that bill. Now, what does that tell you? Are they in sync with the American people? Are they in sync with their own party? No. Why did they do this? Here's my theory as to why they could not bring themselves to vote for it, because they like to play this zero-sum game. And it goes something like this. Um, if they win, we lose. If we lose, they win. And they can't bring themselves to do anything that might appear to be a win for, for Joe Biden and for the Democrats. So even if it's not in the best interest of the country, if it's not in the best interest of their constituents, they will still vote against it. A good example is Roger Wicker from the state of Mississippi, a U.S. senator there. He had an amendment put into the bill to provide you know, millions of dollars for restaurant owners who were affected by COVID. And he and Senator Sinema from uh, Arizona um, sponsored the amendment, and the amendment passed. It was put into the bill, and he was happy about that. But when the bill came up to vote, guess what Wicker did? He voted thumbs down. He voted against the bill. He voted against his own amendment, simply because he could not bring himself to say, I support Joe Biden's effort <laughs> to, to do something for restaurant owners, to do something for the, the airlines. All the, these, these, these people who are hurting, who are... Some are just, just permanently, almost permanently unemployed and just suffering every day. 
here, you know, here was an opportunity for them to step and say, we're going to put the country over party. But no, they could not bring themselves to do that. And I hope they pay a price for it at the polls. I hope those people who are receiving those stimulus checks and, and beginning now to uh, see a light at the end of the tunnel can breathe a little easier. But they also need to be reminded that the people they voted for and put into office didn't care about them. They did not care one flip about whether or not they got some relief from all of the, the suffering that they're going through. These 49 Republican senators just sat there and said, no, we don't want to help you. We will not help you. And of course, the company line for them is going to be, well, it's going to increase the deficit. It's going to add to the, the nation's debt. Well, you know, these are people who, who've come to, come to a realization, I guess, because back when they were giving tax uh, breaks to billionaires and, and, and running up the deficit, they weren't concerned about that. But as long as it was uh, billionaires and millionaires re reaping the benefit, they said, well, let's go ahead and do it. But when middle class and poor people need help, and this, this stimulus package was almost to the penny, the exact amount that they gave in tax credits to and not tax credits, but tax breaks to these these wealthy people. So, you know, it's it just again one more example of of how hypocritical some of these individuals are, who are willing to um, really throw their own constituents under the bus and just say, "What's important is not you." You are not, you are suffering, but you are not my priority. My priority is to become elected again, is to gain power again, is to play the zero-sum game because I can't let the Democrats have a, have a victory here. But they won anyway. And I just hope when uh, the next camp, you know, 2020, 2022 midterms come up in the 2024 election, that whoever's running against these individuals, they will just you know, say, roll the tape, as they say, and, and let's, let's watch them. Let's watch them. Let's watch Roger uh, Wicker and these others explain to suffering people why they turn their backs on them. And I, and I hope the, the American people will, and the voters will say, okay, enough is enough. We're done with this, this self-serving, self-dealing, hypocritical, politics that you're bringing to Washington, D.C. Um, something else I, I ran across the other day um, is, um, you know, George Floyd's trial is, uh, well, Derek Chauvin's trial is starting this week, and the jury is being selected, and it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. The judge reinstituted third-degree uh, murder charges against uh, Derek Chauvin, which gives the jury a little bit more, uh, a few more options, as I understand it, to come to a verdict that would um, be a fair and just verdict. But it's interesting to, to know how the country is divided along racial lines when it comes to uh, George Floyd policing uh, race relations in this country. And that was a poll conducted recently where it says that um, Regarding the George Floyd murder, 64% of African Americans considered the death of George Floyd to be murder. Okay, 64%, that's nearly two out of three black people saying that uh, it was murder. On the other hand, 28% of whites believe that. Okay, 
that's roughly one in four, a little bit more than one in four of, of white people saying, nope, it was not murdered. And, and that is, it, it's, a sharp, it's a stark reminder of the racial divide in this country. How, you know, there's a, there seems to be a, a, a white American that appears to be a America that's made up of people who, who had a different experience, who different, had a different life experience. And it's not just black people, it's Hispanic people and Asian people and, and our indigenous brothers and sisters. Um, where people in power, uh, they just they just don't seem to, they just don't seem to get it. I mean, they just don't don't understand. We just see things so differently, and and I guess there are people uh, among these twenty eight percent who have a different view of uh, of George Floyd, and if you can use that as a proxy for how they view race relations in this country, um, it it's it's pretty sad, you know, when you think about it. It's kind of um, disheartening. And it makes you think, here we are in 2021, uh, we have these kinds of, um, of breakdowns. We have this kind of division in our country and don't know how it's going to, um, how it's going to fix itself. I don't think it can fix itself. Uh, I'm, I happen to be one of those who is, who's hopeful but not necessarily optimistic. I think um, you know, the 70-some-odd million people who voted for Donald Trump voted for him for a reason. Many of them voted for him despite uh, the fact that he is a narcissist, he's a racist, he's a misogynist, he's a liar. They voted for him anyway. And and the choice was voting for a moderate Democrat or voting for a, a racist. And so many of them chose to vote for the racist instead of the moderate Democrat. So I, I've said all along that, you know, Trump is, uh, he, didn't, he didn't cause all of these problems. These problems were here before. He just gave some of these people... Um, a wink, wink, and a nod, nod, and and they just became more emboldened because of him, because of his the example and the model that he set for uh, for systemic racism and, and white supremacy, and people just came out of the woodworks. And even after he has left office, those people are not going back into the woodwork. You know, they they're out now. They're going to continue to um, do what they do. They're still going to engage in. in white supremacy, they're going to fly their confederate flags, they're going to continue to foster the big lie, they're going to do all those things, and, um, and just because Trump is no longer in, in office, can't be on Twitter, can't be on Facebook, uh, doesn't mean that uh, his his influence has, has weakened any, and again, these people were doing these things and thinking these things before Trump came. Now that Trump is gone, they aren't going to give that up. They're going to continue to do it. He's certainly not going to give it up. But also, just as a sober reminder, today is, is March 13th, and this marks the one-year anniversary, sadly, of the death of Breonna Taylor uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. I think most of us know the story there. She was tragically killed, and there was a no-knock uh, warrant or no-knock entrance into her apartment, and her boyfriend not knowing who it was, fired at the police officers, and the police fired back and killed her. And um, police say they did identify themselves. Um, the uh, Breonna Taylor's boyfriend said no, they did not identify themselves. So they, they just, um, uh, unfortunately, the Attorney General of Kentucky um, managed somehow to persuade the, the grand jury not to bring 
uh, serious charges against those officers. One of the one of the charges was just sort of a misdemeanor slap on the wrist. But I think as we reflect on a year later, uh, not only what happened to to uh, Breonna Taylor, but what happened to George Floyd, what happened to Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Elijah McClain, the list goes on and on and on. And it's a sober time. It's a time for reflection. It's a time for us to really think about where have we been, where are we now, and where are we going in the future. And we have to be able to tie all three of those together, the past, the present, and the future, and, and not look at them in isolation because they do connect. They do connect very much so. So I'm just uh, prayerful, and I'm, I, I, my heart goes out to the Taylor family. I, I hope that they will find um, some measure of, of justice and so that their daughters, their, their loved ones, life will not have been in vain. She did not have to die. We should not uh, have to die under those kinds of circumstances. That was, and I think it all boils down to something I, I've written about and I've talked about for a long time, and that's just the basic dehumanization of, of black lives. And that's why you hear the term black lives matter, because for so long, police and others were saying black lives do not matter. And we have, you know, all the lynchings, the, the bombings, and the profiling, and all those things is just evidence that they think black lives don't matter. So we're just saying, yes, black lives do matter. And there are people who get really upset when you say black lives matter. Yeah, they do matter. And to us, they matter. Maybe not to you, but to us. And we're not going to stop saying black lives matter. Um, you know, I think you have to uh, speak truth to power, that uh, if, you know, we're just not going to take this stuff anymore. We, we're going to have to stand up. We're going to have to fight back. We're going to have to resist. We have to not give in. We, we can't um, turn, let the, the hands of time be turned back to the days of Jim Crowism, because there are forces in our country, in the legislature and so forth, where they are trying, they're trying very desperately to turn back the hands of time. They are afraid of losing power. And and that's the thing that, that we have to keep our eye on and say, why are people behaving this way? Because there are people in this country who, particularly white people, who believe that they are losing status, they are losing power in this country because of changing demographics. And they see more and more brown and, and dark-skinned people coming into the country and and, and occupying positions of power and occupying employment positions and all these things. And, and some people just feel that they feel threatened by that. And why do they feel threatened by that? They believe, and many, particularly those who, who are nationalists, white nationalists, Christian nationalists, they firmly believe that this country was founded for white people, by white people, and that's, and that's it. And, and anybody else coming into this picture, they should, yeah, we will let you be here, but you have to be in sort of a subservient position. We can't elevate you to, the, to be, to having rights and status equal to the dominant group. And, and therein lies how this thing gets, gets perpetuated, it gets extended generation after generation after generation. So I'm, I just hope at some point we can maybe not during my lifetime, but I think for those of us who are who care about these issues, we have to continue to speak up, we have to speak out, 
you have to stand, you have to be courageous, you can't back down, and you have to um, be committed to that. And that's a commitment that I have. That's one of the reasons I started this podcast, is that I have a voice and I want to use that voice. And I, I don't want people, I don't want there to be a time when somebody says, well, who spoke out? Who spoke out against this? Who resisted? I want to be able to raise my hand and say, yes, I did. I did speak out. I did resist. I did do something. And I think if all of us do that, all of us take a position, we don't all have to do a podcast, but we have to do something that's going to hold hold the ground, if you will, because there are people who want to take the ground away from you because they fear. There's a fear that the dominant group is losing power, losing status. And, and, and I remember James Baldwin talked about this back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, when someone asked him about black power, what is it about black power that white people fear? And his, his answer still resonates with me. James Baldwin said, uh, one of the reasons some white people fear black power is they think that black people, once they get that kind of power, will use their power the same way white people have used their power uh, to oppress people. And that's one of the fears. They think that if, if we have these you know, black people in, in charge of this, one of the things that we see in, in, in the Biden administration is how he's trying to get people of color into the, into the cabinet. And you see this resistance by these, these Republicans, particularly white Republicans, who, who are really, really going after some of these, these um, uh, nominees of color because I think they, they just want to kind of put people in their place. But they just don't realize our place is everywhere. We're, we're no longer going to be satisfied with, um, we're not going to accept this notion that we have a place. Our place is wherever we want it to be. And we're not going to, we're not going to accept, we're not going to accept anything less than that. Well, that's what, I just have to get that, share that with you today. Um, There's so much going on. One last thing that I, I heard the other day, I'm kind of chuckling about it, but it's really not that funny. Uh, Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott, who's an African-American from South Carolina, I saw an excerpt from an interview he did on where a son Fox News. That's that's their favorite place to go when they need to uh, spew out and spout this uh, some of this racist conservative stuff because they know they aren't going to get challenged. They aren't going to get asked tough questions. And he was he Tim Scott invented a term that I have really never heard before, but he called it the woke supremacy. Now you've heard the term woke. That means people coming to the realization that systemic racism is here and I need to do something about it, that I am now more aware of discrimination and uh, in all of its forms and, and my awareness of it is going to spur me on to do something about it. That's what being woke is about. And, and, and he said, and this came out of his own mouth, he said woke supremacy is just as bad as white supremacy. Okay, this is a black guy saying this, that woke supremacy is just as bad as white supremacy. And if I could talk to Tim Scott, I'd say, you know, look, man, white supremacy is what caused people to be lynched, caused, uh, you know, those, those little girls in, in Birmingham, Alabama, who, who, who got bombed, the house got bombed, that's white supremacy. Um, you know, there's so many examples. Vernon Damer in Hasburg, Mississippi in 1966, he was killed. That was white supremacy. And for you to say, for those people who want to 
end racism, who want to do something about racism, that they're no different than these people who, these white supremacists. I don't know. I don't know where your head is. I guess I do know where it is, but you need to remove it. You need to move it and and just kind of look in the mirror, brother, because, you know, <laughs> you, you because you have an R behind your name doesn't doesn't shield you from being the target or the object of some of these racist remarks. Don't think because you have an R behind your name that somehow exempts you from uh, being talked about and, and having the N-word thrown at you. I think you, you need to read your history. You need to understand that uh, white supremacy uh, has resulted in the deaths of of thousands of people. White supremacy is what enslaved African uh, people. Uh, white supremacy is what gave us the black codes. White supremacy is what they came up with a thing called the slave Bible to take out certain passages in the Bible so enslaved Africans wouldn't want to aspire to be free. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. Michael Schwerner, the three civil rights workers in Mississippi, uh, that was white supremacy. When they broke into, when, when these insurrectionists invaded the Capitol, that was white supremacy. I don't know how many woke people, people who are trying to become more aware of, of white supremacy in this country and, and, and systemic racism, how do you even equate the two of those? And how do you say that is just as bad as white supremacy? I don't get it. But Tim Scott is a politician uh, first. Uh, he's a Republican politician. His understanding of history is um, is sorely lacking, and his his compassion and his understanding of the struggle for civil rights. He either has a short term memory, doesn't remember, or in the company of people who who like that kind of talking, like those kinds of words, especially from a black guy. They will applaud him and say, "Why can't black people be more like Tim Scott?" Well, I'm never going to be like Tim Scott, and we need fewer of Tim Scotts, and we need uh, more of other kind of folk. I'm not going to call any names, but we know who they are. Well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call it a, a day, but I wanted to, to, to get that done. I have another um, episode coming up here pretty shortly as well, uh, one that I, I, I'm doing with uh, another successful black man. I did one last week with a successful black woman because... And as we know, Jared Kushner, when he was still, when his father-in-law was still president, claimed that Trump wanted to help black people to be successful, but black people have to want to be successful themselves. So what we're doing, I'm just doing a series of, of conversations with people, black people who are successful, who have been successful, and just to remind people that despite the odds, despite the obstacles, despite the challenges, uh, the things we've talked about here today, the Jim Crow laws and the the lynchings and the, the enslavement and all those things, <clears throat> that black people are still being successful. And we don't need Jared Christmas nor Donald Trump's permission or approval or a nod to be successful. Uh, we need to tell our own stories, though. We need to remind people that Jared Christian, Jared, Jared Kushner don't know what he's talking about. And we just can't we have to resist it when those those little uh, racist um, remarks come up. We have to we have to knock them down. We have to. It's almost like 
whack-a-mole, but we have to keep at it. Every time someone pops one of these things up, we have to deal with it. Anyway, that's it for today, and I'm going to call it a day myself. Have a great weekend. Uh, whenever you're listening to this, enjoy uh, what's going on. If you get a chance to, to get your, your COVID vaccine, please do it. Wear your mask, and let's just take care of one another. Y'all take care. Bye-bye.